a fellow heard about an operation that would enable him to get a new brain. I know a few of you here and there are like, ooh, that sounds intriguing. Um, So he goes to a hospital where the surgery had been perfected. And they said, well, we have a few options available for you. He said, show me the options. So he's shown in in this see-through place, you know, an engineer's brain in this container that he can see through. An engineer's brain. And uh, it's a finely finely toned, finely tuned, precise bit of gray matter, they say, and that'll cost you $500 an ounce. He says, let me see what else you got. So they said, here's a lawyer's brain. In this one here, it's a collection of shrewd, tricky gray matter, you know, can see all the loopholes. That's $1,000 an ounce. He said, show me more. I want more options. I'm not satisfied yet. Is that all you have? They said, no, we have a couple more. This one right here, is a doctor's brain. It's filled with anatomical knowledge, medical information. Uh, that one is $5,000 an ounce. And the final one that they showed him, they went over to this place. It was kind of covered. You couldn't see it. And this sort of in hushed tones, they looked at this and they said, this one, this one is a legislator's brain. A legislator's brain costs $250,000 an ounce. The guy was like, who has money for that? And why is it so expensive? They said two reasons. Number one, it's hardly used. (laughs) Number two, do you realize how many legislators it takes to get one ounce? (laughs) That's too easy. Politicians and pastors and preachers, it's about the same. It's it's easy to, to joke about. Here in Greene County, we've just been through some local elections and, uh, at the time, when it was sort of a fever pitch of campaign, you could drive one block, and on about every corner there are 17 signs. More than that in some places. And most of them have been taken up by now. In about six to eight months, we'll begin the fever pitch campaigning for the next presidential election, which is in 2016. It's a presidential election year. And, and whenever there's a new president being elected, there's always this line of thinking that is common, that, that you may have heard. I kind of hear this sometimes on news channels or people as they're discussing politics and, and what do you want in a president and what should, be, what should be the characteristics of a leader. And the thinking inevitably goes something like this. When it comes to politics, it's more important to have somebody who is competent and can get the job done than it is to have someone with moral character and integrity. You ever heard that kind of thing? It's, it's more important that somebody gets the job done than it is that they are a person of high moral character and integrity. That's how the thinking goes. And they'll say something like this. Would you rather have at the controls of a plane that you are in a competent pilot or an incompetent pilot? A competent pilot who might have moral failings or an incompetent pilot who is the best man you've ever met and who is a person of high moral character and integrity, which would you rather have? I want the one that can fly the plane. That's how the line of thinking goes. That's how people think about that sometimes. The problem with that way of thinking is that it's a misunderstanding of the nature and the purpose of leadership. Piloting the plane may not be an intrinsically moral task, But leading a country certainly is. This same principle 
the same principle of having high moral character and integrity, it applies to all sorts of important tasks in our lives, not just leadership tasks, any sort of task where there's people involved. Parenting, teaching, business, co-workers, anything that involves leadership of people, anything that involves just dealing with people and they're close enough to get to know you and you're close enough to get to know them, that same thing applies to all those kinds of things. And Paul here in this passage says that same thing applies to anybody who is going to follow God's calling on their life to be useful. That same thing applies to anybody and everybody who is going to follow God's calling on their life to be useful for the sake of the kingdom, to be useful for the master. If you're in a position where anyone is watching your life closely, then you are in a context like that. Where what hangs in the balance is whether you are useful for the sake of the master and the kingdom. As we've been talking in this series which we're calling Fan the Flame. We've been learning each week a little bit more about what it looks, to make, looks like to make disciples. What, it, what does it mean to be a disciple maker like Paul was for Timothy? Like all of those generations of people who came before Paul to lead him to the place to invest into Timothy, to lead into the place for him to invest into the people that he is leading. To invest so that we could be here. Disciple making is how the kingdom moves forward. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is effective spiritual leadership is an intrinsically moral task and it doesn't work, it will not work if you are not a clean vessel. This thing only works, this thing of living your life closely enough so somebody else can see you, get to know you, get to know about your behavior and know who you are. This task of fanning the flame of the gospel only works if you are a clean vessel. So Paul is saying you have to You have to constantly be on guard for your life. You have to know that your life is being watched. Let me ask you a question, friends. Are you living? Are you leading? Are the people around you able to corroborate? Are they able to say that you are leading them, you are living around them in a way that is worthy of being followed? To be a disciple maker is to live in a way that's worthy of being followed. And in order to get to that place, Paul says, Timothy, you have to be a clean vessel. You have to be prepared for what that looks like. This only works, this transfer of faith of the gospel from one person to another by the Holy Spirit's power. That only works if you're a clean vessel ready for good work. So let's see what that looks like in these ways that we're going to look at today. The principle is that clean vessels are useful vessels. Clean vessels are useful vessels. Let's jump in at verses 20 and 21 and see where we get this principle about clean vessels being useful vessels. Let's look at 20 and 21 here. Let's read the whole thing first and jump back and point out some things. It says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Look at verse 20 there. It says, now in a great house. Paul starts off with the household metaphor. Notice it says it's not a regular old run-of-the-mill house. It's a great house. The person who owns this house is wealthy. 
And so he says in a great house, they're not only earthly vessels, they're also fancy vessels. They're not just like menial task vessels, they're also like special vessels. The vessels a container used to hold something. And he says in a great house, they're not only vessels of, of gold and silver, the fancy stuff, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. So these containers, this vessel, it's also a word from which we get uh, something that holds people in the water, like a boat <laughs> holds people in the water. It's a container of people. Uh, there, there's part of the, the ducts in your body and, and, and vessels in your body. They, they carry something. So a container is just anything that carries. And here in a house, he's comparing these things like everyday items used in cooking, perhaps, like bowls and, and pans and that kind of thing. So in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, the shiny, fancy, break them out at Christmas and Thanksgiving things that you see twice a year, but also the things that you might use back in the kitchen to mix and to prepare the food. The fancy, shiny, well-known ones, the gold and silver ones, you may keep in the china cabinet, break them out a couple times a year at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. And he says, in a great house, they're not only those, but they're also the everyday use things. And he's not saying gold and silver better than wooden clay. He's just saying different, different use, different roles. Doesn't mean good or bad. It's just a way for Paul to, to say that different, different dishes are used in different ways. Some are used in the kitchen, maybe for baking. That'd be sort of the wooden clay bowls, the things that you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take out to serve to somebody. You'd, you'd mix with it and you'd, you'd do your stuff there and you're done with it and then you'd serve it on something else outside for your guests. What he's setting up here is what he wants to say in verse 21, which is the principle. We'll get to that in a second. But he's just kind of setting this up by saying, listen, some are used for this, some are used for this. Nothing good or bad about it. They're all helpful and useful. But he says this. This is interesting. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone... He doesn't just choose the word anyone like accidentally. He's saying if you're gold and silver, if you're wood and clay, anyone, not just the fancy stuff, not just the things you break out of the china cabinet for uh, or your guests. He's saying if anyone, even if you feel like a mixing bowl that's not well known... God can use you, he says. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use. The point isn't the type of role you play. The point is that the master can use any type of vessel if it's for his purposes. If it's ready to be used by God for his purposes. Look at verse 21 again. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable Use. Now remember that this is in the context of the false teachers who were invading this church at Ephesus. They were perverting the gospel, uh, babbling on with empty words that we talked about the last couple of weeks, inciting gossip and division from within the body. So Paul is telling Timothy to stay away from that so that he is clean in that environment, so that he's a clean vessel that the master can use. I like how Paul finishes this in verse 21. He gives three statements that clarify, that tell us what honorable use looks like. Look at these cool statements here. A vessel for honorable use is set apart as holy, set apart sanctified for a particular purpose. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, able to be used by God for God's purposes. And third, if you're clean, then you're ready for every good work. You're ready, like you're prepared for it. 
prepared to be clean and holy on the inside so that on the outside your witness is intact. So Paul is saying, get yourself ready for this. If you're going to be a disciple maker that's fruitful, that's effective for the cause of the gospel in the world, then you have to be a clean vessel. He's saying, prepare for this. Get yourself ready. Stop preparing for earthly and worldly comfort. Stop preparing for temporary earthly goals of security and safety because I'm about to put you, I'm about to put you in a ministry that's involved with people around you who are perverting the gospel. You've got to be clean for that. So how do I clean myself? Paul? He might say, you heed my advice in the next four verses. These next four verses are sort of the spiritual dishwasher for your life. So mind these directions if you're going to be faithful to the task of making disciples. The preparation, number one, verse 22, involves run. Run. Verse 22 says, so flee. That's where we get the word run from. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Notice it says to run from something towards something else. To flee from youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. This word flee here means to escape from danger primarily by running. To escape from danger primarily from running. Reminds me of in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 39 when Joseph is, is there and Potiphar's wife is trying to tempt him to, uh, to sleep with her and, and he runs from her and, and her, her hand actually literally holds his jacket after he's run off. Genesis 39 verse 12 says, Joseph fled, same kind of word we're using here. Joseph fled and got out of the house and she was left holding the jacket because he ran from it. So like that, run away from youthful passions and then run toward, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue is a word that means to follow hard after something. To follow hard after something. When you walk out those doors today, you have to follow hard after the heart of God, which is righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Away from sin, toward God's character and nature that we see here in Scripture and that was lived by Jesus and because of His death, burial, and resurrection and the Holy Spirit being sent to us lives in us now. Pursue that. So are you running away from empty words, immature pursuits, silly controversies, waste of our time, waste of your resources? Are you running away from that and pursuing pursuing being a clean and useful vessel? Because listen, we're prepared from the grave. Uh, I'm sorry. We're prepared from, uh, from infancy to pursue things that make us prepared for this world. Some of us still do it and don't even know it. Paul says flee that. Because if you're going to be useful for something other than just yourself, if you're going to be a part of God's work that's bigger than you and me by ourselves, and that's about glorifying Him, that's going to be useful for the Master, you're going to have to run away from this and toward righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Do you love, do you love doing what's good and what's right? 
I'm not talking about like, I know I'm supposed to do this. I'm talking about, do you love it? Do you pursue it? Are you following hard after it? Because I see a lot of people in their lives following hard after things that are a waste of their time, a waste of their efforts, a waste of resources. Follow hard after the heart of God. That's what righteousness means. Anything that comes from His heart. If you pursue that, you'll be a clean vessel, useful for fanning the flame of the gospel, useful for the Master's cause. Now, now this is something that we sort of put out there for people, and it's like, that's a big task. (laughs) You want me to participate in the amazing, mind-blowing thing God is doing of changing people's lives from sin to a relationship with Him. You want me to be part of that, like I'm responsible for that somehow? Well, yes and no. There are others with you in this. And God does all the real heart work. We'll get to that at the end. But, but there are others involved in this process. They're alongside with you. You're not just running from that by yourself towards something else by yourself. Look at the end. Look at the end of verse 22 there. It says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How cool is that? This pursuit of what's good and right happens in the context of a community. That's how he's made it for us. Because you by yourself, me by yourself, were not successful. We need others around us to help us in this, to run from what is wrong toward what is right. That's why accountability to the body is humongous if you're going to continue to become a useful vessel. We have others who are helping us escape. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the story, uh, The Hiding Place, written by Corey Ten Boom. It's uh, her uh, life story, basically. It's a biography. And her family in Nazi Germany helped others escape, helped their Jewish friends escape from being found and murdered. This is the little hole that was in her, uh, her room. This was called the secret room. The secret room back in there, they had up to six people who could live there, and this was uh, behind some stuff, and it was kind of hard to get to in her bedroom on the top floor of her house. The secret room was the place where they, where they led people to help them escape. Do you, do you think this way about your life? For people in the body? For people not yet in the body? Do you think this way about your life? I've got a secret. I've got something that you have to know about. We are here to help one another run from sin and toward righteousness so that we can be useful for the sake of people knowing Jesus. There's nothing bigger to which you can give your life than that. So run from sin. Pursue righteousness. Verses 23 and 4. Paul encourages Timothy and us to shun silly things, foolish, ignorant controversies that breed disunity. Look at 23 here. 23 in the, the, yeah, just verse 23, excuse me. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but, but notice it says have nothing to do. It's not like go ahead and dabble. You're safe if you do that. Just go ahead and like keep your toes dipped 
in stuff that's a waste of your time, energy, and resources. That's, that's okay. You can just dip it in there. Just dabble with it. He doesn't say that. He says, have nothing to do. He says, shun it. Because to be a clean and useful vessel filled with the Spirit of God for the purposes of the gospel in the world means shun stuff that doesn't matter. He says foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? Because they just breed quarrels. They breed division and disunity. They take away from the gospel's movement in the world. They take away from your ability to be a useful vessel. So just shun it. Just like say, who cares? I'm focused on what God's called me to do, which is to make disciples. Because if, because if somebody wasn't focused on that before me, I wouldn't know Jesus. Truth. For everybody who knows Jesus, that's the truth. And so, so think about, think about how... It, in contradistinction from the people who came before, who sacrificed life and limb, who put money into you knowing Jesus, who, who put their family in the way of danger. Think about the contrast between that kind of passion for the gospel and sometimes how you think about, man, I can't wait to go home so I can just, I want to watch some NFL. have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies because they detract from your ability to be involved in gospel work. So just, just shun foolishness that breeds problems and ruins witness. So number one, run from sin toward righteousness. Number two, shun foolish controversies. Number three, it gives us four things here to embrace and endure. Three things to embrace, one to endure. Verses 24 and 5a, look at this. It says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Paul is saying embrace kindness, embrace godly teaching. And then he has a couple hard ones. Endure patiently evil that comes at you. Embrace gentle correction. Look at verse 24. It says, and the Lord's servant... In other words, a clean vessel ready for the master's use must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome. Don't be like the false teachers and the gossips who follow them. He's saying don't engage at their level. But, then he gives four key ways the Lord's servant carries out the master's orders. Number one, be kind to everyone. Two, able to teach, patiently endure evil. And four, correct opponents with gentleness. The first one here is about embracing kindness. Don't be quarrelsome, seeking to always be right, always having to pick a fight, uh, but be kind. I don't know if any of you have been like me. I suspect that a whole bunch of you men probably have, but, uh, but I always had to be right for a long, long time. Always had to be right. I would throw out fancy vocabulary and obscurantist terms so that like, you would feel like I was right even if my argument wasn't. In the process, there would be people around me who I would make feel small. That's not kindness. When we treat people like that around us, the goal is me. The goal is I win. The goal is my purposes. Listen, what Paul's calling us to, what Paul's saying to Timothy here is, the goal is different. 
The goal for your life now is different as a disciple maker. He says, embrace kindness. Even when you're surrounded, surrounded by foolish controversies and gossip and backbiting, the useful vessel chooses kindness. I mean, think of Jesus. Think of Jesus' ministry. He was surrounded constantly by people trying to to get at him, to attack him, who opposed him. Does he bite back and snip at them? Even when he's constantly surrounded by naysayers and and gossips and, and dividers, he was gentle and kind. Matthew 11 says he was humble of heart. The God of the universe was kind. Embrace that. If you're going to be a useful vessel, embrace that if you're going to make disciples. Number two, he talks about embracing godly teaching. The phrase there in verse 24 is able to teach. If you're going to be useful for the master in in, in the cause of making disciples, of becoming someone worthy to be followed, you're going to have to know something about what the gospel is. For Paul, being able to teach is a key component of effective disciple-making ministry. And he uses this phrase, able to teach, three times in First and Second Timothy. And just because he uses it, Paul uses it particularly applied to Timothy in a narrow kind of leadership role. It applies to all. Remember earlier in our passage, it says, if anyone wants to be useful for the master, if anyone cleanses himself, this is, this is applicable for all people. So what this means, if you're going to be a disciple maker, is you're going to have to be in the Word. I'm not saying you're going to have to be a Greek scholar. I'm not saying you have to go to seminary. The more you study, the better equipped you can be. But you've got to know something. So, so, so many hold back in making disciples because they think, I, I don't know enough. Well, you don't know as much as you should tomorrow. Hopefully will in a year from now. But do you know enough today to say, hey, these are the basics of what the good news of Jesus means. So that you have internalize that and you can speak it with somebody else so that you know your own story, your own testimony, your own, your own story of coming to faith so you can communicate that in ways that communicate the gospel. Not just by how you behave. There's plenty of that kind of verbiage in here. But also how you speak. You've got to be in the Word to know enough so that you can help someone know enough. I mean, think about it. There are basic things you have to know before you commit your life to Christ. And when you became a believer, there were things you knew. You have to be able to know that and communicate it to somebody else. You cannot fan the flame effectively if you don't even know how to build a fire. Being in the Word means I've got some matches and some kindling. I know how this works. So you've got to be in the Word. Number one, Embrace kindness, number two. Embrace godly teaching, number three. This is where it turns a little harder. Numbers three and four. It says, endure evil with patience. It says, patiently enduring evil. Sounds like fun, huh? Sign me up, Jesus. Paul knows that if you're going to be useful, 
you have to be prepared for a battle. But unlike normal warfare, you fight in crazy and strange ways. <laughs> you fight by patiently enduring evil in this war. Because remember, the goal is different. This isn't about you. This isn't about worldly security and safety. This is about someone else knowing Jesus, participating in God's plan of redemption. So this is warfare for a different cause, a different purpose, and the weapons are different too. Paul uses here for this word patiently. He uses a very different word than would normally be used for patience like this. And, and, and it means this. It means to bear evil without resentment. To bear evil without resentment. That is hard. When somebody besmirches your character, they attack you personally, uh, you, you don't really, your first inclination, if it's remotely like mine, is not to just be like, ah, patiently endure it. Yes. The picture that Paul wants to paint here is, is of a relentless teacher. A disciple maker is a relentless teacher who firmly overlooks, intentionally overlooks the painful consequences of one's own teaching. Uh, this is sort of in this word patiently here, but, but he's trying to paint a picture for Timothy that his life is going to be so in, in connection with other people that they're going to rub up together. And, and, and Timothy, if he's being faithful to the gospel, he's going to say some things. He's going to behave in some ways that those people that he's interacting with are not going to like. They're not going to like it. And if you're going to be a disciple maker, you're going to have to say some things that people around you may not like because you're going to be saying, hey, listen, you've got to, you've got to run. You've got to run from that and toward righteousness. People around you don't really like hearing that, obviously. <laughs> but if you're going to be faithful as a disciple maker, as a teacher of Christ to another, then you're going to have to be a teacher that overlooks the painful consequences of the things you're saying and teaching. Now, given, given, we say those things lovingly, tactfully. We just talked about kindness. We say this in a way that people can hear. We say this out of a relationship that we have where we are trusted. But when we do even that, we're going to have to bear evil without resentment. Of course, in the immediate context, this is about Timothy, who has people within the body who are attacking and who are perverting the gospel, who are involved in foolish, ignorant controversies that are detracting from people getting to know Jesus from within the body. So Timothy is having to confront those who are perverting the gospel. So, yeah, Paul, bearing evil without resentment is not easy. Our, our tendency, my tendency, Timothy might say, is that when we are attacked, my tendency is to break out the guns, to allow the anger to take over, and to be like, bring it on. Paul is sort of proposing a Christ-like endurance of evil. It's like he's saying, listen, just hold on. Your best defense is a long-term tactic of patience. Your best defense is a long-term tactic to endure evil patiently. I was talking with a friend this week. Uh, he reminded me of something that he told me before. And I think this is something that applies to anyone who is substantively involved in communicating the gospel in word and deed. In, in some sense, in some meaningful way with others, you will, if you have this kind of ministry with people, you will, you'll experience this. He says, even when it's personal, it's never personal. It's personal if this is about you. 
But, but, but listen, disciple maker, this isn't about you. Your frame of mind, your heart, is for someone else to know Jesus. Which means patiently enduring evil means when they, when they talk at you about something you maybe even have said or done. Oh, sure, you may need to repent about something. You may have done something wrong. You may need to talk about some sin that you need forgiven from that other person. But when it's personal, it's not personal. That person needs to know Jesus and your goal is to participate in them knowing Him. So when you're a disciple maker, you're going to have to patiently endure evil. Uh, Finally, the fourth, the final uh, key component of being a clean vessel, the fourth one here is that Paul exhorts us to embrace gentle correction. Another hard one. Embrace gentle correction. On the heels of that last piece of advice to patiently endure evil, he adds, oh yeah, correct opponents with gentleness and receive correction. Primarily he's talking about correcting others with gentleness here. He's saying be kind, be able to teach and patiently endure evil. Proverbs 15.1 speaks to this key component of embracing gentle correction. Embracing it as a way to communicate. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When you're, when you're in the mix and it's hard, there's controversy. Do you, do you give a soft answer that turns away wrath? Embrace that way, that Christ-like way of correction. Clearly the tactics that Paul is proposing here are not normal. It's about being useful for the master. Remember, that's the goal. Being useful for the master. Not being useful for your purposes here on earth. That's not what being a Christ follower means. That's putting your treasure on things that will not last. If it's about being useful for the master, then we have to follow the master's methods. Isaiah 53 is a, one of many places that talks like this about the Messiah's attitude and face in the face of opposition. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 says, He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers, he was silent, and opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is not normal tactic, because it's not a normal war. We fight differently. We follow the methods of a master who died calls us to the same so that someone else can live. We follow the methods of a master who died so that we can do the same so that someone else can live. And I get it. It's hard to do that in a world that trains us to speak, off, speak softly and carry a big stick. That may, that may work in war. Uh, But this is a different battle. We're fighting with different weaponry because the goal is for some to know Jesus. The goal is repentance. Next couple of verses here, halfway through 25 and also 26, it says, God may perhaps grant them. If you are a clean vessel being used by the master, God may even perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Of course, he's talking here about those who are opposing him in the immediate context, but it applies to anybody who doesn't know Jesus. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
because the goal is not to shame your opponents. The goal is not to condemn one's opponents. The goal, if you're following the master's methods, is to love them, to bear with them, to patiently endure, to gently correct. The goal is for someone after you to live because you're willing to die. That's the method of the master. And to be a clean vessel, ready to do that, is what he's charging with there. A disciple maker who pursues the goal of being a useful vessel will be used of God to do his work. There's nothing better than doing that. There's nothing better than being a useful vessel for the work of the Master. Let's pray.